if what Cody did last week was a little bit nerdy uh, when he talked about the backgrounds, uh, you guys are in for it way deep today. Uh, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. In fact, I brought a little white tape. If you're wearing glasses today and you want to take just a little piece of this and put it on the middle up there so that you can kind of stay with me as I'm going. Cody, you can just kind of pass that around the rolls and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. You know, one of the things that continues to pop up in the news from time to time, uh, and it's kind of prevalent, and I, I think uh, news, something the news considers newsworthy, so we probably hear about it more than we do some other things, is a report of someone who's deconstructed their faith. Um, and uh, we're told about this deconstruction, how this has caused them to walk away, actually, from their faith in Christ. Uh, Brian uh, Zahn, in his book, When Everything Catches Fire, defines deconstruction uh, as a crisis of Christian faith that leads either to a reevaluation of Christianity or sometimes a total abandonment of Christianity. And that, that sounds ominous. And, and, you, and never a good thing when someone walks away from their faith in Christ. And so the question kind of in the background back there is what causes somebody who feels like they have faith in Christ, who feels like they believe in Jesus, to kind of back away from that and decide suddenly at some point in their walk along the way, I don't really believe in Jesus anymore. I really don't believe in the Bible. Uh, and I think it's important to note that deconstruction is not the same thing as deconversion. Okay, those are two different things. Deconstruction is the process of this close examination of, of taking your faith apart and looking at the pieces and examining them and, and trying to figure out, do I, do I really believe this? Is this really me? Okay, that's deconstructionism. And deconversion is, of course, walking away from your faith. Uh, but I don't think that you have to lose your faith in order to evaluate what it is that you believe and who it is that you believe in. Okay? In fact, I, I would say that if you have never never deeply examined your faith, if you've never looked at what it is you believe, if you've never looked at those pieces and thought about this and asked yourself the question, do I really believe this? Uh, or is this just something that, that my parents believed or that my pastor believes or that my grandmother believed, then, then it's probably not quite your faith yet, okay? Uh, because it's something that you really feel like, faith is something that's very personal. It's got to be something that you own yourself, it can't be someone else's faith. Um, and uh, I think a reevaluation of what I believe about Christianity is actually healthy for two reasons. The first of those is, is man, I'm, I'm, I'm just a sinful clay pot. I'm just a, I'm just a regular guy. I'm, at my core, I am absolutely and utterly human. And I'm sure at some point I have inevitably brought things into my faith that don't belong there. It's just, it's just baggage that I've kind of carried in with me when I came along, and I need to look at that. And secondly, I think wrong ideas, particularly wrong ideas about Jesus, need to be deconstructed, okay? Uh, they need to go away. Um, now, when I was growing up, there was a very traditional picture of Jesus that was uh, on... Go, go ahead and throw that on the screen, if you would. Yeah, that's the one. Um, and this is, this is just, uh, I didn't go to church much, but this will be the one that I, when I did go to VBS uh, uh, as a kid, this was the picture hanging on the wall. But these, these pictures were in more places just, than just church because we were in a very, uh, very 
Christianized South, I guess is the easiest way to say that. And then, you know, in these pictures, Jesus has long flowing brown hair, which obviously had been recently washed and blow dried. And he had white skin, whiter than my skin, because I spent as much time as I could outside. And, uh, um, and these piercing blue eyes, I just remember those piercing blue eyes out of the picture. But as I got older, I had to deconstruct that image of Jesus and come to the grips that that's probably not what Jesus really looked like, okay? That was some artist's conception who, who, who made Jesus look like what he thought maybe he wanted Jesus to look like. And, and this is kind of what we see going on in John's gospel, all right? Uh, Jesus is trying to help the Jewish people in his day um, uh, deconstruct their picture of the Messiah because it's become so wrapped up in their culture as Jews, it's moved away from what Scripture actually taught. And so Jesus is helping them take a part, and that's really what's going on in John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. Uh, and Cody's been, been, been walking us through these passages, and we've kind of been slugging it out with the, this, this ancient Jewish population. What is the Messiah really going to look like? Um, you know, in John 7, if you want to just, if you've got your Bibles or if you're, you're on your phone or on your iPad, just scroll back or flip back one page to John 7. We, we see a, a glimpse, a little bit of glimpse of their cultural Messiah. Verse 27 in chapter 7, he says, But we know that where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know. We know where this man comes from, talking to Jesus. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. No one's going to know. There's going to be this mysterious word. He's going to appear out of nowhere as it is, this mysterious figure. And that's kind of this one image of who the Christ was that was circulating around. Down in verse 31, scroll down a little bit more. It says, yet many people believed in him. You have that word belief in there. What does that mean? And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so there was this association of the miraculous, this divine anointing on the figure of the Christ, the Messiah, when he comes. And then down in verse 41 in chapter 7, and others said, this is the Christ, talking about Jesus. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And notice two things about just these, these three quick references there out of John chapter 7. One, there's this, this contradictory ideas that are floating around about who the Messiah is going to be. And just in the same way, when we look at what our culture in America thinks about who Jesus is, we see all these conflicting ideas that are out there. Uh, but also, there are elements of truth in those three verses. There's elements of truth scattered in these cultural pictures of who Jesus is. And that's, that's sometimes what makes it so difficult to sort out. You know, one of the takeaways for me when, when Cody was preaching through John 6 and, um, uh, and they were trying to take Jesus and forcibly make him to be king is that, you know, it just struck me that, you know, you can't have Jesus as king if you don't know what kind of king he is. And Jesus didn't want to be the king that they wanted he didn't want to be the Messiah, this cultural Messiah that they were pictured in their mind who was going to come in and, and make Israel great again by defeating the Romans. You know, Cody said last week in his message that the Jewish nation, nation is, a, is a picture of how we can walk with God today. And that's so true. That's so true. And, and by the same token, the mistakes that they made in blending culture into their faith are the same battles that we're still fighting today. 
And we have to be culturally relevant. I mean, we have to be in, have enough contact with the world around us so that we can present the gospel to them. And, and as Cody says, we, that we can be winsome. And I, I have to confess to you, Cody, I had to look that word up. That's not a word I normally use. Uh, it does mean attractive or appealing. Uh, we, we, we want lives that are attractive and appealing to the world around us without, guys, without allowing culture to dictate the substance of faith. And that's a fine line. And, and particularly even so as our culture today is shifting and moving more than it has in any other point in American history. Um, back to chapter 8, verse 30. John writes these words, and he says, As he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. And so the question comes up then, exactly what did they believe about Jesus, given all of the stuff that we've read in John chapter 7? And I, Because it's clear to me by the time we get to the end of verse 38 that they haven't been set free yet. And in fact, Jesus' father is not their father. And, uh, and kind of the takeaway there, guys, is that we can't just believe in the Jesus that we want to believe in. We can't just create a Jesus in our mind, either one that's convenient for us or one that looks like us or one that feels good to us. We have to believe in the Jesus as he revealed himself to be uh, in the Gospels. And I think that's still a big struggle in the church today. You know, um, I, hate to, I hate to be the guy that quotes from Talladega Nights, But even, as Will Farrell said there, the Jesus he wanted was the eight-pound, seven-ounce baby Jesus. And that struck me because in a lot of ways, that's what all of us really want. We want the Jesus we want. But that's not how it works. And there's a lot of pictures of Jesus out there. I found another picture. Go ahead and throw the next picture up. Cool Jesus. I call this the cool Jesus. And so my question for you guys today is, as we're, as we're here, as we're using this time and, and we're thinking about John chapter 8, is what, um, what image or picture of Jesus have you believed in? So if you're here today and you're not exploring Christianity, if you're here today and you say, no, I'm, I'm in, I, I define myself as a believer or as a follower of Jesus Christ, who is that Jesus that you're following? What does he look like? Uh, is, is it the Messiah that Jesus came to reveal or a Messiah that seems to work in American culture? Verse 31, uh, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so what I want to do this morning uh, in my, my own very nerdly kind of fashion is, is to give you three principles for deconstructing your faith so you don't have to deconvert, okay? I want to I talk to you about examining your faith carefully from this passage in a way that doesn't make you feel like you've got to walk away from your, your faith. And the first principle there is that the Bible is inspired, uh, but my interpretation is not. The Bible is inspired, but my, my interpretation is not. And I think the trap that partially enslaved the Jews in Jesus' day uh, is not the law of Moses. It's not that they were, they were keeping the law and following the law. It's that they had an interpretation of the law, a very set, fixed interpretation of the law, which, which 
which couldn't change, in, in, and we call it the oral law, right? So they had the written law, the law of Moses, and then they had the oral law, the law that was all of the, all of the set interpretations of what the, the written law meant, and that, that oral law was elevated to a place of equal status with Scripture itself. So they elevated their interpretation of the law of Moses to be equal to the, the, the Scripture itself. And, and in that sense, practically, as, as they used it, inspired at the same level. Uh, in, in their own words, they, they built a fence around the law intentionally so that hopefully if you sinned or if you stumbled, it was in that fence that they put around the law so that you couldn't get to the actual law itself and break it. That was their intent. They wanted to protect people from breaking the law. Um, now, Judy and I took a, a trip to the Smithsonian, and I was trying to remember how long ago that was, sweetheart. It was, I guess, more than 20 or 25 years ago. So we, we went to D.C., and, and of course, to see the things that are in D.C., we went to the Smithsonian, which is what I was really interested in, my wife much less so. Um, um, but in one of these, because I discovered there's seven Smithsonian's, or at least there were at that time, and so it wasn't just one museum, it was a lot of museums. And so in one of these museums was the Hope Diamond. So yes, I have seen the Hope Diamond, I think. Uh, it was, you, you, you went up to it single file and there was a little roped off area and there was a kind of a two by two glass, maybe twice the size of this, uh, this podium on here. And, and there it was, kind of sitting behind this glass, but the glass was, was so thick, you could see that there was something back there. It could have been the Hope Diamond. It, it could have been a piece of glass, okay, back there as a safety feature so that nobody would try to break in the steer. But it was obvious that the thickness of the glass was distorting what the diamond would look like. And you couldn't tell how sparkly it was. You couldn't tell anything about the diamond at all, but it was theoretically the Hope Diamond uh, in there. And so when, the, when the, the Jews elevated their rules, their interpretation to the same place as Scripture, it, it, distorted, it distorted what the law looked like. It protected the law in their minds, but it distorted what the law looked like. Um, now, um, Interpretation is necessary, guys. We can't, we can't read the Bible. You can't read anything in here. You can't read what John has written. You can't read what, what any of the gospel writers wrote or what Paul wrote or what Peter wrote without interpreting it when you read it. We interpret by necessity. When, when you're hearing me speak, even now, you're interpreting what I'm saying. We're interpreting the world around us. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how God made us to be. We get information and we interpret that information, all right? So we can't get away from interpretation. Uh, but, the, but our interpretation never reaches the inspired level. Even interpretations by people we really trust, by people we think have got it all down. So a John MacArthur or a Matt Chandler or a Ben Stewart or a Vody Bauckham or a Mark Dever, all of these guys are sharp and they're insightful. And as far as I can tell, they are full of the Holy Spirit and they are great communicators. But every one of them would tell you that their interpretation is not at the same level as Scripture itself. And, the, and in fact, these men don't agree about everything themselves. 
they have interpretations that differ in some minor area or other, even though they're all reading the same text. And, and in fact, I made an interpretation while I was preparing this particular passage. There's only one big interpretive issue in this section of John, and it's whether or not there's one group of people that Jesus is talking to or whether there's two groups. Because it says very clearly in verse 30 that they many believed in him. And then it says in 31 that he was speaking to those who believed in him. But when you get to the end of verse 38, you're thinking, man, these guys are all lost and going to hell. Uh, and and uh, my, uh, my approach is uh, that Jesus is speaking to the same group all the way through. There's no transition there, but that means that John is using uh, believed in a very broad sense and not in a very tight and technical sense. Um, the other option is, is that G somewhere in the middle of this, that Jesus starts, stops speaking to this group and starts speaking to this group, but John doesn't give us any indication of where that takes place. And, and here's the deal, guys. My understanding of the text could be wrong. My interpretation of this text could be wrong. And, and so where I'm going with this is because my interpretation can be wrong, it can never be equal to Scripture. It can't happen. And, and guys, it, it, uh, it's not possible for anybody. And so when I deconstruct what I believe, I'm not deconstructing my faith, okay? I'm looking at my interpretation because my faith is not based on my interpretation. My faith is based on Scripture, Okay, and it's an important distinction to keep in there. So, um, Scripture actually sets the boundaries for what we can and cannot believe. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, another big question, I think, and it's big in our culture today, is if I'm going to be free, why would I want Scripture to impose any boundaries on me? Right? Why would I want the scripture to, to set limits on me? Why can't I just do what I want to do if God has really saved me? If I'm really okay with God, why can't I just go and do whatever it is I happen to feel like doing at that particular moment? Why do I struggle with that particular piece? Um, it's a little bit uh, like this. This is a square, right? This is a speed square. Um, Jesse says it's a triangle. No, it's a square. It's called a square. It's a triangle. I don't know why they call it a square. It's, it's a square, all right? And a square does basically two things. It, it, helps, it helps me to, uh, when, I'm, when I'm making a cut, to cut things, to shape things square, but it also helps me to check things to make sure that they're square. Those are the two basic functions of a square. Now, this one is a little bit, this is kind of a rafter square. You can cut rafters and do a lot of things with it I can't do, but I use it to make things square and to check to see if things I have made are square. And that's basically the function that Scripture works like in our life. Uh, I use Scripture to square up my faith, to make sure I'm where I need to be, and then I use Scripture to come back and check myself to make sure that I am still square with where I am. All right? Um, now, someone might say, well, what about just letting the cut go everywhere it wants to go. Why, why did I try to cut things square? What's the big deal about that? And I promise you, I have caught, uh, cut a lot of things that weren't square uh, with a square and a straight line, and I still couldn't make a straight cut. 
That's a different story. That gets back to my broken nature and my imperfections. Um, but, if I, if, but if I just decided, you know what, I'm, just, I'm not going to use the square. I'm just going to let the cut go where it goes. And it's going to be, you know, it's, it, it'll just be that, that creative thing. And I'll just, we'll just get it there and we'll see what I've got. And, and if you've ever built anything, if you've ever tried to put things together that aren't square, it just doesn't work. And every time I make a cut on a board that's not square, I, it ends up costing me more work and time and effort to try to work around the crooked piece that I created. And in the end, I just end up with less than what I hoped for. So there is a limitation, there is a boundary if I say I'm only going to cut things that are square, right? But that limitation becomes a very good thing to get the end result that I hope to get. Um, the freedom that Jesus is talking about comes from squaring our lives to Scripture, to the words of Jesus. He says, if you abide in my word. And then checking our lives against Scripture to make sure that we have stayed true. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day, they were all about the law. I mean, they were all over the law. They knew it inside and out. And they were using and applying the law every day, all the way through. They were using the whole law. The only problem is, is that Scripture is more than the law of Moses. So they, were, they ended up using the part of Scripture, and they got out of square. Uh, they were keeping the sacrifices in the temple according to the law, but they neglected what Hosea had to say. And this will be up on the screen. Hosea 6.6, 6, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Um, God, God says, I, I want you to love me. I want you to know me and love me. I want that more than, what I, than, than sacrifice itself. Another example, the Jews correctly understood that they were God's chosen people, that, that, that they were the descendants of Abraham, that they were in a covenant, a covenant relationship directly with God himself. But they overlooked what Isaiah said in Isaiah 42. He says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness, and I will take you by the hand and keep you. All that sounds good, right? That's that covenant stuff. And I will give you, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Now, it's starting to get weird in their eyes, by the way, okay? Because the word nations there is the same word that is the word Gentile. It's the same thing. You're either Jewish or you're not Jewish. You're either, you're either a Gentile or the nation or you're Jewish, all right? There's no, there's no difference between those words. I'm going to give you, Israel, uh, and, and the, here talking specifically about the Messiah, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, um, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. And the Jews considered the Gentiles to be, man, untouchables, that they were, they, were, they, were, they were immoral and they worshiped other gods and their, and their lives had no connection to the law whatsoever. And, but God wanted here in this passage, he still wanted Israel under the leadership of the Messiah to be a light for the nations around them and help bring them out of darkness. Were they far from God? Sure, they were far from God. But did it mean that God didn't love them? No, it didn't mean that. And Israel, the Jews, got out of square with Scripture by not taking the whole thing. 
And guys, let me just say that the real danger, that's a real danger for us as believers today, is that we tend to skip over verses that don't fit into our fixed interpretation. We just, we kind of ignore them. We push them out of the way. We don't talk about them. Um, But guys, we have to have the whole counsel of Scripture. You can't keep the law without the prophets. You can't base your faith on the book of Acts or on the epistles of Paul or even even this image of Jesus from the gospel. We've got to have all of Scripture to keep ourselves in a healthy balance. We need those balancing voices in our lives. Second principle for deconstructing uh, what you believe, for evaluating deeply what you believe without Uh, walking away from your faith is that you can't separate truth from morality. Verse 37, Jesus says to this group, he says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And and notice the tension in this statement. I mean, we kind of skip over this as Christians today because we already know the end of the story. We already know that the Jews want to kill Jesus. We already know that Jesus is going to end up crucified and that a driving motivation behind that is going to be a push from the Jewish religious leadership. But there's a tension here because you have these a group which is so proud to be the descendants of Abraham, so proud to be the keepers of the law of of Moses, but they aren't really worried about breaking one of the Ten Commandments. It's a moral one, but it was inconvenient at this particular point in their lives. And I started thinking about that, and you know, five of the Ten Commandments are moral. One half of the Ten Commandments our morality, our based, our moral commands. Why did God do that? Why did God do that? And it has to do with the holiness of God. It has to do with the holiness of God. And we can't take truth. We can't go in and, and try to separate what we think is true from the moral picture of the Bible. And I think when we're, when we're evaluating our faith, I think it's tempting to try to do this. But folks, morality is truth because the God who inspired the truth inspired the morality that's in the truth. And you can't just pull those pieces apart. It's like saying, you know, I want to do physics. I want to explore the universe. I want to, I want to really grasp all of these great things with the, 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 all of the new telescopes that we have out there. And we're seeing things that we've never seen. I want to do physics. I, I just don't want to do any math. It, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work out that way. And guys, if you try to, uh, to separate truth from morality as you evaluate your faith, you're going you're gonna to end up not only deconstructing your faith, but you're going to put yourself in a position where you're probably going to walk away from your faith because that's how embedded morality is in the truth of the Bible. You just can't pull them apart. You can't do it. Um, and, but that's what we see going on in the world around us. I want to be the offspring of David. I want to be okay with God. I want to know that I'm going to heaven, but I don't want the Bible telling me what I can and I can't do. Um, and Jesus' response to them is that their desire to define their own morality as evidenced by their desire to kill him was, was proof that his words were not finding any place, really, in their hearts, in their lives. And, and guys, let me just say, there's freedom. There's freedom in moral boundaries. And it's not just... 
health reasons, but my, my life is healthier, my, my conscience is healthier because like it or not, I have a moral conscience embedded inside of me and you have a moral conscience embedded inside of you. And people who don't even, uh, who, who don't even pretend to know God have a moral conscience embedded inside of him. Every society in every place in every area has decided that murder is wrong. Why is that? Because as Paul says in the book of Romans, there is a moral compass that God has put inside of us. But it's, it, but it's not just that my conscience is healthier, guys. My relationships are healthier because the truth is, is that moral boundaries are not just for me. Moral boundaries are not just to make my life better. Moral boundaries are there so that your lives are better. Because the truth is, if I'm not lying and cheating and stealing and committing murder, everybody's life around me is a better place. You can't separate truth from morality. It's the same thing. Third principle for deconstructing your faith, for evaluating deeply what it is you believe and do not believe, is that you can only deconstruct back to the truth in Scripture. So because the Bible is inspired and my interpretation is not, and because I can't separate the truth of the Bible from the morality that I find there, so when I, when I take a deep look at my faith, I'm only really looking at the pieces that I've added on top of Scripture. I'm only looking at the things that I have believed based on Scripture. I'm not really evaluating Scripture itself. Uh, and so when I'm deconstructing, guys, I, I can only deconstruct until I get back to the foundation of Scripture, and then I stop there. Then I stop there. Uh, and it's tempting to think in the world that we live in, in the advanced society that we live in, in the 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth, that we have become so much better than they were, that we know so much more than they did, that we've, we've educated ourselves and we discovered things, we've answered questions about the world around us that they didn't have any idea that could even be asked. It's tempting for us to think, and, 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 and you don't even have to use the word evolution here, just just through existence, that we're in such a better place than they were when Jesus walked this earth, that we ought, we ought to be able to look at the Bible and figure out what should be in there and what shouldn't be in there, right? That's the temptation. And, it, and it's not that we don't have education. It's not that we, 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 we haven't learned a lot of things. But guys, let me just tell you that, that I don't have the skill to do this. I have a Bible degree. In fact, I haven't formally studied any other topic since I got out of high school except for the Bible. And I'm, t I'm here to tell you straight up and down, I don't have the ability to walk through Scripture and to pull it apart and to say this is a keeper and this is not. Because I don't have anything eternal to compare it against. I don't have another rule out there. I don't have another standard. I don't have anything out there that exists above Scripture itself that I can use to correct Scripture. Nothing eternal. And I think anybody who says they can is either lying or they're deceiving themselves because there's no other source of truth out there that overrides or supersedes or can supervise Scripture. And let's put this in perspective, guys. We, we all have lifespans that we're just, we're just here for a short while. And I understand this a little bit better at 58 than some of you do, okay? I've crossed the halfway mark. On average, the average lifespan in America 
for a guy is 85 years. For a lady, it's something like 88 years. The Bible has been around for thousands of years. And I'm not even going to live to be 100. And the reason that people coming, keep coming back to the Bible, that the reason that the Bible is still the number one best-selling book of all time, in fact, they don't even put it on the, the book list anymore, is that people find it to be true in their lives. Experientially, the Bible speaks to them. Jesus says in verse 31, if you abide in my word. And abide here means, it just means what it means. It means to get there and to stay there. It means to camp out there. It means to park there. Okay? Abide in his word. And then we can not only know the truth, but the truth will set us free. And guys, we can rethink our interpretation about what we think the truth means, but we can't rethink the truth. And when we're evaluating what we believe, and again, I think this is a good thing. I think you ought, to, you ought to ask yourself the question, does the Bible really say that? Or ask yourself the question, do I really believe that? Do I live my life like I really believe this is true? I think those are great questions to ask. But when, you, when we ask those questions, we're asking questions about our interpretation. We're not asking questions about the validity of Scripture. So when we deconstruct, when we look at those pieces, we only deconstruct back to Scripture itself, and then we stop. And um, it's like a house that you're going to remodel, right? Now, my wife watches too much uh, self-improvement, home improvement TV, and we've done some remodeling at our house as a result of that. I have come to the firm conclusion that Joanna Gaines just hates walls. That's all there is to it. She despises walls. But when you're remodeling, you can, you, can, you can actually literally take everything down to the slab. You can take it all the way down to the slab there, the foundation. But when you get there, you stop and you can rebuild. Because here's the deal. If you decide, you know what, I'm just going to go deeper. I'm going to dig deeper. I want to go below that. If you bust through that slab and, and you're going to start tearing out and, and digging down and digging and digging and digging, guys, there is no stopping point under that slab. There's no place that you're going to down there at all. And you dig and you dig and you dig and you dig until you are exhausted. And you look around and realize that you've dug a pit and you don't know how to get out of it. Let's look back at John 6 for a second. So turn two pages back in your Bible or a page and a half back, wherever... John 6, 45 is. And, and Jesus is, is, is trying to help them rethink again. They're looking at the Messiah and he's trying, he's working with them as he does in these three chapters. And so they're asking for, well, give us another sign, a special sign. You know, maybe like manna. And, and uh, Moses helped call down manna from heaven. And, and, <clears throat> and Jesus says, well, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they get stuck on the fact, not that Jesus is talking about the Messiah. They get stuck on the fact that he's a man. So look in verse 41. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? And how does he now say that I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. So no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day as it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. And everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes from to me 
So Jesus is, Jesus is working with them here, and he's, he's helping them to, to deconstruct their understanding of the Messiah. And so what does he do? He takes them all the way back to Scripture. So let's just start with this verse. Let me start with a verse here. That, and he, he quotes part of Isaiah 54, 13. And, and the whole chapter of Isaiah 54 is really just a, a chapter that talks about the future glory of Israel. It's what God is going to do for Israel down the road. It's, it's the good side. He says, you know, when, when, you, when you're past sin and when you're past all these things and past all this judgment that I've, that I've put upon you, because the first, there's a lot of judgment in the first part of the book of Isaiah. But when we get all past all of that, things are going to be good with us again. Jesus deconstructs their understanding by taking them back to Scripture and reminding them of a passage that they were overlooking because, again, it didn't fit into the, the model of the cultural Messiah. Um, so e even though Jesus is, is working on this deconstruction thing, even though Jesus keeps moving and correcting them, what Jesus has to say to them has a lot of hope. It has a lot of hope. Uh, Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And when you, when, you, when you look at the world around us, when you look at people, what people are searching for, what they're desperate for in their souls, they're looking for truth, and they're looking for real freedom, real freedom. Now, I know there's so much chasing money and power and, and sex and, and all of that stuff that's out there. But even those people, even those people are looking for truth and they're looking for genuine freedom. And Jesus says, you can have that. You can have that. You can actually really have that. But it's, it's in my words. Um, both of these things come from what Cody encouraged us to do last week, is to submit, submit ourselves to Scripture. Submit ourselves to Scripture. Let's put up that last picture. Um, this I call the picture of the unknown Jesus because we don't really know what Jesus looked like. But I want to end with this question that I ask you guys to be thinking about as we were talking today. Is Who is the Jesus that you have believed in? Who's the Jesus that you're following? Are you squaring your lives up with Scripture? So that you know that you're following the Messiah that Jesus came to reveal. Um, you know, we're going to close out in just a moment. We're gonna, I'm, I'm going to have a word of prayer and we're going to stand and we're going to sing a little bit before we go into communion. Uh, but we do communion each week here at Redeemer. And uh, it's a celebration of the work of Christ. It's a, it's a celebration of his death and his, his resurrection, what he gave for us, how he, he paid for our sins. It's a celebration by those of us who, who know that we have, we've chosen to follow Christ. We've chosen to, to be his disciples. We've chosen to try to square our lives up uh, with his word. And um, uh, while we have an open communion in the sense that if you're a believer here today, if, if, you, if you're following Christ, we're, we're going to invite you to participate with us. But if you're here this morning and, and uh, you're, you're still exploring Christianity, if you're thinking about what does it mean to really follow Jesus, what is this Christianity thing, is that, is that really going to be for me? Uh, we're going to ask for you to, to just 
watch and observe and, and to use that time thinking about your relationship. What does Jesus mean to you? Um, and um, because it, it, it would be, as it's the celebration of what Christ has done for us, it wouldn't quite be true for you yet to jump in and to participate that. Now it's symbolic. And uh, if somebody does that, it's not the end of the world. No fire from heaven is going to come down and fall on you. But it's just the principle of the idea that this is a celebration inside for each of us individually and, and personally. Um, let's just let's pray together.